Do take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, uh, presents the triviality and pointlessness of a life that's always waiting for Godot to turn up. Of course, it's easy to see who Samuel Beckett was uh, directing his irony at. One of the things that he didn't recognize is that for most people, there's no waiting for Godot or for God, but rather there's a search for something other than the God who has made himself known, other than the God who has revealed himself. People are looking for God in all the wrong places. Here in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah points us to the real source of any knowledge of God. He points us to the Bible. He points us to the Word of God. He points us to the Scriptures. And if you were to take the Bible as a whole and to follow the Bible's storyline, you would discover that it presents us with a number of high points, high points of human interaction between God and humanity. Arguably, I think there are three. You could say there are more than three, of course. But I think the main peaks of God's activity with human beings are probably the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, and the reign of David. What made these important is not the actual events themselves. Abraham, if you had met him in his own place and time, would have seemed no different from any other migrant or nomadic person of his day. The Exodus, if you were to meet the children of Israel on their way through the desert towards the promised land, would look like any displaced people trying to find a homeland. And if you had met King David, you would have seen that he looked no more, no different, no better than any other warrior king of the era. So what makes them stand out? Why are these peaks in the Bible? Well, the answer is, of course, that in each of these stories, Abraham, the Exodus, and David, God provides the commentary, an explanation. He not only tells the story, but he explains the story. So, for example, what's really important about Abraham is that God promised him that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. What's significant about the Exodus is that that spelt the beginning of the Hebrew nation, the Israelite nation, to which God makes a promise, I will dwell with them. I am the Lord their God. It's against that victory that we have to see Israel's unfaithfulness and unbelief in the subsequent centuries. And David is important because God made a promise to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So not only does the Bible tell us the story, but the Bible explains the story. Not only does the Bible describe the event, but the Bible also leads us to understand the event. So what is important is that history in the Bible is moving somewhere. It's moving from A to B. It's moving in a direction. Abraham's seed was ultimately to be the Messiah, the Christ, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
the Exodus victory over Egypt was a precursor to the even greater victory of Christ over sin and death and Satan. And the promise made to David of an everlasting kingdom was not to be fulfilled in the subsequent kings that followed him in the normal course of events. They would rise and fall. Some would be good, some would be bad. Some would be downright evil as King Ahaz was in Isaiah's time in this chapter. But ultimately, that promise was to be fulfilled in the arrival of one who was descended from David according to his human nature, was crucified and then raised from the dead, and as a resurrected man was able to ascend David's throne and reigns today in the power of an endless life. In other words, what makes sense of these events is the record of them, but also the interpretation of them. And that interpretation is found in Holy Scripture. There we discover not only what happened, but we are given the meaning of what happened. Uh, And uh, that meaning is something not in our heads. It is not subjective. It is not what it means to you or what it means to you or what it means to me. The, The meaning of those events is objective. It's outside of us. It's written down. It's there for us to go to. You can go to it. I can go to it so that we come to some consensus about what it is God is saying that he is doing in these events as they unfold in space and time and history. Now, that really is the background to this passage that we are revisiting this morning in which Isaiah gathers his disciples around him, verse 16, and communicates with them and communicates with them about the Word of God. That really is what we're referring to here in verse 16 and following. He is giving to his followers, to his uh, uh, disciples, as they're called, these believers who have listened to his teaching, but they believed it. They've listened to what he's had to say, and they've embraced it. They've received it as the Word of God, and they've become followers of God by being followers of God's Word. And he's giving this word to them. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. The imperatives call for a specific, definite action. This word that the prophet has spoken and now that has been written is to be secured and safeguarded from tampering and tempering, from subtraction and addition. It is to be preserved because it is the Word of God. And he uses three words to describe it. He uses the word testimony, God's testimony. This is not simply that God has given a nod to what Isaiah has said. This is not simply that God has nodded his approval to what the prophet has spoken. Rather, when we call the Word of God the testimony of God, we're saying this is God's spoken testimony. This is God speaking for himself. This is God, as it were, in court, being asked to give an account of what he has done and what he was doing and what he meant by what he was doing. This is God giving us his spoken introduction, his own self-revelation, his own witness to himself, testimony. Not only that, but teaching. He uses this word teaching. It is his Torah. 
His law, His rules, His commandments. This is the revelation of what God wants us to believe about Him and how He wants us to behave as His followers. This is God's teaching. This puts flesh on the bones. This gives shape to the way we think about God. It also gives shape and form and substance to the way we live for God in the world, His teaching. And these two words, testimony and teaching, are two words that are often used together along with other words like statutes or rules to summarize the entirety of God's revelation to His people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is the law, the, the teaching that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. In other words, they cover everything, everything that God has revealed. In Psalm 19, the psalmist says this, the law, that is the teaching of the Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And when Isaiah uses these same words here, he is saying about his own teaching and instruction, his own word, that this stands alongside. It is beside all these other words that God has spoken. Therefore, in verse 20, he can refer to it as God's word. The teaching, the testimony is God's word. It is his personal word to you. It is his personal communication with you. This is how God has communicated with humanity, with his people, with you. God has spoken. It is a real flesh and blood interaction. God addressing you. When he calls for the sealing, the binding, and the sealing of this word, he is saying this must be brought together as a formal document. This must be put together and recognized as the formal treaty document in the relationship between the great king and his subjects, between God and his people, between the father and his children. This is the constitution of the holy nation, the church, the people of God is a holy nation. It has a written constitution. And you may revisit it again and again and again and again. It remains the same. It remains unaltered. The constitution of the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ. In this book, brought together what we call the Old and the New Testament, we have the covenant maker's mind. We have what he's thinking. We have what he wants to say to us. We have his clear, clear word, a word of God. Now, this is all underlining what Isaiah is saying here. This is the first thing that he wants to bring to our attention. I'm calling it the authority of Scripture. It is God's word written. And in the immediate context, God's word to Isaiah was, if you look back to verse 11, it was that he and his people should not be moved by what other people are saying. They should not be moved or upset or shaken by the kind of misunderstandings or misrepresentations or talk that are going on around. Rather, they must focus in on God's word 
written. God's word is true. People were spreading lies. God's word is true. People were creating misunderstanding. God's word is true. People were talking conspiracies. God's word is true. That's Isaiah's point. It has authority. And you see, he he places, by using this language of his own teaching, his own message, testimony, teaching, word, he is placing his specific ministry in the context of that larger work that we know as God's revealed word, the Scripture. He is saying that Scripture, that is God's message, God's communication, God's word, is a matter of divine disclosure. God has made it known. God has revealed it to us. He has spoken to us. This is not something that human beings have come up with by themselves. The the, the Word of God is not a matter of human discovery. It is a matter of divine disclosure. And he makes that very clear here. Now Isaiah's understanding of the Scripture is the same view that's held by Jesus and the Apostles. Jesus regarded the words of Scripture as his Father's own word. You want to know how Jesus knew what the Father was telling him in his day-to-day life? Well, he got it out of Scripture. He's always quoting Scripture. You want to know how Jesus resists the devil? Well, he uses Scripture. You want to know how he challenges the authorities? Well, he uses Scripture. You search the Scripture and you don't realize. Peter one of his apostles, said that the prophets did not speak for themselves, but as they were led along by the Spirit of God. He calls Paul's letters Scripture. Paul refers to Luke's gospel as Scripture. And in one of his last letters, the apostle Paul groups together the sacred writings and the apostolic teaching He groups them together. He says the sacred writings were able to make you wise for salvation. Anything you need to know, anything you need to know, in order to be right with God, in order to go to heaven, where are you going to get that knowledge? Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Scripture, the sacred writings, the apostolic teaching. He brings them together, and he says about both of them together, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, whatever doctrine you need to learn, for reproof, whatever slap you need to get yourself right, for correction, that is course correction in your life, for training in what righteousness looks like, that the person of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now you see, Isaiah, Jesus, Peter, Paul, all agree with Isaiah that Scripture is God's spoken word written, written down. And it's not simply a record of God's activity. This word, because it is the word of God, the word by which God created the universe, is the primary means of grace for the people of God. It delivers what it promises. The Word of God creates and regulates the church of God. It creates the church of God. The Word of God calls people out of darkness into light. The Word of God pronounces our pardon. The Word of God 
puts the Spirit of God into the hearts of God's people. The Word of God draws out of us by the power of the Spirit the kind of response that God is looking for from us. And it is profitable. There is nothing you need to know God, to live for God, to think about God in the world that the Bible does not provide. It is the final authority in our lives. And you can see how this plays out in this passage. Those that receive this revelation are like uh, Isaiah and his friends. Look at verse 17. He, he speaks on behalf of the others. And he says, I, wait, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. I will wait patiently. I will hope expectantly. Same word. You, uh, two words meaning the same idea of wait. Waiting patiently on the one hand. Waiting hopefully or confidently on the other. And what he's saying there is, the Word of God is what frees me from popular opinions and popular alarms. It's the Word of God that makes me patient and confident. Here he is, he's surrounded by misunderstanding, uh, probably by being, sub being subverted by those who were who were saying negative things about him. That's a, one of the possibilities of verse 12, when God says to him, don't fear what they fear. Don't be caught up in their fears, their alarms, or be distracted by what they're saying. God says to this man, rather, he says, hope patiently, hope confidently in God. Take the Word of God seriously, that the Word of God fill you with confidence before God in the world. And if you look again at verse 17, you'll see, even in days when God is hiding himself, even when it looks as though God is punishing his church, even though he's holding back the river of blessing to his own people, even when he seems to be silent as an act of judgment on his own people, what, is the, what does the prophet say? Even in that situation, when God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will still wait patiently. I will still wait confidently. Why? Because he takes the Word of God as the Word of God. And he takes it as the authority in his life. And the Word of God breeds in his heart a sustaining trust and hope in God. It's the only place. It's the only sure place on which to stand. But there are others who reject this revelation. And those that reject this revelation, he says, verse 19, are going to be launched onto a sea of doubt. You see, the big temptation is to look around for certainty elsewhere. Having abandoned the idea of divine disclosure, they then opt for human discovery. And there were those in Jerusalem who were doing just that. They were proposing an alternative road to the knowledge of God from that of the prophet. They were, they were suggesting there was something you could add on, something you could do on the side just to be sure, to be sure. And so the prophet warns them. He says, when they say to you, he's referring there to, to uh, false teachers, false prophets, the leaders that were leading the people astray, he's warning them as a faithful pastor should not to go down that route. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God. What are you saying to them is this. 
there are those out there who are saying that there is an alternative to the written Word of God. That there's an alternative to finding guidance in your life outside of the written Word of God. It is a sad reality that in the whole history of Israel, following their uh, uh, population of the land, the promised land, that there was a running battle. There was a running battle with the culture of the nations that were round about them. They were always regularly and by default seeming to go by what the nations were dictating and what they were believing and what they were doing. They were beguiled by their ideas and alternative spiritualities. They were drawn to their values and their ethics. They accommodated their truths and their tastes to those of the nations round about. And having shifted, having shifted from the God of revelation, this all-wise creator, this God of holy love, having been diverted from that, they were looking elsewhere to find a source of comfort and guidance. This is something that happens over and over again in the history of the world. In the 20th century, late 19th century, Europe particularly, uh, was in the grip of rationalism and in the First World War, those, the old certainties, the idea that man was moving ever upwards, ever evolving higher and higher and higher to a perfect, wonderful utopian era, uh, the First World War smashed and destroyed all of that rationalistic self-confidence. Glory to man in the highest. Man is the master of things, as Swinburne wrote. All of that was dashed on the fields of Flanders and the Somme. And after being dashed, these same people, rationalists, materialists, swarmed to spiritualist churches, to mediums, to try and get in touch with their sons or their fathers or their husbands or their brothers who had died in such massive numbers on foreign fields. It was a most amazing turnaround to go from this confident scientific rationalism to this, superna this supernatural, this uh, superstitious spiritualism. Now, when we look at the church today, if, there was a, if there's a fault line in the church today, it, it, it runs along the same kind of sort as you find here in this passage. In Isaiah's day, the fault line was the nation's roundabout and their religious practices. Today, the church, of course, we don't so much look at nations roundabout, but as the holy nation of God, we look at the culture, the world roundabout, what, what John calls the world system that's in opposition to God. We look at the world, and the world equals the nations in Isaiah's day. It is the world's culture that creeps into the church. And increasingly, the world's culture is determining how we read the Bible when it comes to leadership. Who should be in leadership in local churches? Or gender issues. What does it mean to be human? Or origins. How did life begin? The current project is how to take the clear statements of Scripture and make them mean something other than they are clearly meant to mean. What the people in Isaiah's day were doing was they were ignoring clear statements of Scripture. 
I mean, the scripture, for, for example, Leviticus 19 said this, do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. And what were they doing? They were doing precisely what the scripture clearly said they should not do. Today, the scripture clearly says in a text that here at 10th, you should know so well because it's been preached so thoroughly to you over decades, is this. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let your approach to Christianity be informed by the world's thinking or the world's behavior or the world's values or the world's pressures. Because that is precisely what will lead you to be in the kind of predicament that the people of Isaiah's day found themselves. What is Isaiah doing? He's arguing for the authority of the Word of God. And uh, in our day, of course, there are two kinds of spirituality. Even, Even in the church, there are two kinds of spirituality. That which is shaped and fashioned by the Word of God, and that which is shaped and fashioned increasingly by the prevailing culture. There's a whole new interpretation of the Bible that we would, might describe as a situationalist reading of the Bible. And that reading of the Bible would not exist if it were not for the pressures of the world around us to start rethinking things. Things that are difficult to say with your, when you're looking someone in, in the eyes Uh, in the workplace, or at lunch tomorrow, or or at the school where you teach. Things that are hard to say as a believer without being ridiculed, or dismissed, or marginalized, or rejected. Isaiah emphasizes, he challenges the people. Should not a people inquire of their God? Where should you go when there's an issue? Where should you go when there's a question? Where should you go when there's a challenge facing you? Should not a people inquire of their God? How do you do that? He goes on to tell us. Here's the second point. He talks about the authority of Scripture. Secondly, he talks about the sufficiency of Scripture. Where should you go? Listen to him. To the teaching. And to the testimony. He reverses those two words. To the teaching and the testimony. If you're anxious to find the truth, if you're anxious to find reality, if you want to know God, if you want a dependable place to go, if you want to know the key to understanding the tough bits of the Bible, if you want to have a key that explains the tough areas, the hard areas, the deep areas of the Bible, where do you go? Isaiah gives you the answer. You go to the Bible to understand the Bible. That was the whole essence. That was the fundamental material cause of the Reformation. You go to the Bible to understand the Bible because only the Bible is revealed by God. There is no other source. There's nowhere else you can go to understand the Bible. Do you go to the church hierarchy? Do you go to the, to the magisterium of the church and ask the church to tell you what the Bible says? Then you're placing the magisterium of the church over the Bible. Do you go to the scholarly 
influences in our universities or seminaries and you say to them, I can't understand the Bible, you tell me how I should understand these passages. Do you go outside the Bible? Or do you go outside the Bible to the culture? What's acceptable to you? Yeah, let's speak to the culture. Let's speak to Philadelphia. What's acceptable to you? That as I read this Bible and it says this and this and this, you find it unacceptable. What would be better? How would you prefer that we read this? That's what we're doing, isn't it? That's what we're doing all the time. That is the great temptation of our day. That's what the people in Isaiah, Isaiah's day were doing. They were going to the, the culture around them and they were saying, look, we're really not quite happy with what the, what the Bible is saying, what the prophet has said. What the prophet has said doesn't sit well with us. You know, we're, kind of, we're more with you than we are with Isaiah. How should we read the Bible? How should we read the Bible? The prophet challenges them. We should not think that God's word is obscure or uncertain. Let's think about this. When we find God's word obscure or uncertain, it's because it clashes with what we think or feel or what our friends think or feel or what our colleagues think or feel or what the media thinks or feels. There's always some exterior reason. There's always an exterior reason. We don't actually find the word of God lacking in clarity. What God has to say is recorded in writing. That's one of the great things. You, you don't need to rely on word of mouth. It's there in writing. And Isaiah will not let us be relativistic or situational in our reading of Scripture. He will have us test Scripture by Scripture. Here's what he says to the law, to the testimony. Come back here. You've got a question. Come back here. You're looking for meaning. Come back here. You look for an answer. Come back here to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because they have no light of dawn. That can be read both ways. I think there's several options, about four, but they amount to two. One is that it's because there's no light in them. Or if they don't speak according to this word, it will lead them into darkness. And maybe we're meant to see both of those aspects in the text. Apart from the Word of God, any light Christianity has is darkness. True light, true clarity is found in the law of God, the written revelation of Scriptures. And if we don't turn to it, we are left in darkness, he says. We have no dawn. We remain in darkness. Until we come humbly with our minds and submit our minds to the Word of God, Bring all our thinking, speculating, and opinions and submit them to the authority of the Word of God. Then we will just keep going into deeper, deeper darkness. John Oswald, in his uh, commentary on Isaiah, puts it like this. Unless the Christian church can agree that the Bible as it stands is the very Word of God, it is without consensus, authority, or light. It is without consensus, authority, or light. And it's this very point that's under assault from within the evangelical community today. Does the Bible mean what it plainly seems to mean? Or do you need something else, the church, the scholar, the culture, to interpret it for you? Of course, the church, the, 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 church, the scholar, and the culture have a, 
have an assisting role. They, they have what we might call a, a ministerial role. They, they're able to help us and serve us, but what they help and serve us with is subject to the magisterial authority of the Word of God itself. Well, what does it lead to? It leads to a subjective inner hopelessness. If you turn from the Word of God, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they'll look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. This is what happens when the church, the people of God, the Israel of God, abandons the revealed and recorded Word of God. It may talk of enlightenment. It may speak of relevance. It may pretend to sophistication. It may boast of advancement. But in the end, it will slide deeper and deeper into darkness. John Wesley, no friend of Calvinists like us, said, apart from the recorded Word of God, any light Christianity has is but darkness. Those who reject revealed truth Do you notice? They'll look back and they'll find no satisfactory answer to the question of origins. They'll look around and they'll find no satisfactory answer to the question of the human predicament. They'll look forward and they'll find no satisfactory answer to the question of destiny. Only God's Word is truth. What happens when people reject revealed truth? What happens to those who turn to alternative readings of reality, whether they're superstitious or rationalistic or whatever they may be? This is what happens. They lose a transcendent view of life and the world. And they succumb to a natural view. They plunge themselves deeper and deeper into darkness. This is what happens. This is what happens. When the Word of God is your guide, when the Word of God is your food, when the Word of God is your breath, when the Word of God is guiding and directing your life, you have a view of God that is great. God is big. God is huge. God is great. God is eternal. God is transcendent. He breaks open the the windows and the doors and the roof is off and it's the universe and He fills everything with His glory as Isaiah saw in chapter 6. That once you lose the perspective that this transcendent God has communicated to us by His Word, all you're left with is a flat, flat, horizontal kind of thing to which all the opinions of these and these must be weighed and attested and so on, and you're in a, com- you're in a conversation with yourself rather than with God Himself. Listening to God, you're listening to others rather than listening to God. Life has become boring. It has become empty. It leaves you spiritually hungry, dissatisfied. You can't find any church where you're happy. You can't find any place where you can go where you're truly satisfied unless they're saying the things you want to hear. Unless all it is you want is to market your life in question marks all the time. If that is all you're seeking, then God bless you. But you won't be blessed. You'll be empty. Why is this picture so relevant? It is because precisely this is what happens. When confidence in God's Word goes, soon confidence in God goes. 
a gloom descends upon the soul. So that when calamities come, when crises strike, when losses are experienced, when questions arise and when doubts break over us, there is nowhere sure or certain to go or to stand. Because there is no definite thing to say. What we have to grasp is that unbelief, whether that's aimed at God or whether that's aimed at what God has said, is sin. We often forget that going off on some new theological theory or using some new theological perspective may seem clever to ourselves and our acolytes, but in the end, it is usually a statement of lost confidence in God's written word, which means that it is falsehood. It is a lie. It is sin. Theological error is sin, as much sin as moral evil is. It is sin against God. And sin brings bondage, not freedom. Isaiah is arguing, you see, for the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And if you're in any doubt about the Bible's authority and sufficiency, he throws you a little tidbit. We read into chapter 9. He says, you have any doubt about the Word of God? This gloom and darkness is going to persist. Israel will continue in its unbelief. Judah will persist in its unbelief. And there will be exile, and there will be banishment, and there will be gloom and darkness, and they'll never really get over it. And it will last a long time. This gloom and darkness will last a long time until a ray of light will dawn. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, commenting on this passage, says, Isaiah sees the day when Christ will reveal himself. And it will happen in the least expected place. It will happen where? In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In the latter days. A light will dawn. And it will happen where? In Galilee of the nations. And do you notice what it says? He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. And St. Jerome says, Cana in Galilee. The light shone and was made glorious. Do you remember? John says that. John chapter 2. Jesus performed his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. And there he was glorified in the eyes of his disciples. Isaiah just throws that in. It's a word of God to you. This word you can trust. This word is true. Whether it's talking about something nine months from Isaiah's day, and the fall of the two northern nations to Assyria, which he's spoken about in the first part of the chapter. Or whether he's talking here about the advent of the Messiah, which he's going on to do in chapter 9. About 700 years later, the Word of God is true. You build on that Word. You build on that Word. It gives you the patience to wait and the confidence to wait until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. And our eyes see the King.
in his beauty. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, you would give us a real confidence in the heartwarming commitment to a joyful reliance upon your word in all its authority and sufficiency for our lives and for the lives of our church and the churches of our land and the world in its need. We pray that you would lead us to submit to that word as the word of the King, King Jesus, who is the King and Head of the church and the Lord of all. In his strong name we pray. Amen.